ones are already gone. Okay. <sighs> that was loud. I like being happy. I like making people laugh. I enjoy being comfortable. In all honesty, I'm happier now than I ever have been in my life, actually. Um, I've had some incredibly beneficial people in my life, the kind who were strangers who knew me better than I knew myself. You ever had anyone like that who just had you pegged? And because of them and because of a ton of work I put forth into an emotional wellness program that I entered into last summer, I'm the happiest I've ever been. I laugh more easily. I can stand up for myself. I sleep better than I have in years. I faced my demons and I overcame them. But I've not always been this way. And frankly, this isn't a sermon for happy people. This isn't a sermon for the people who've had a fantastic year so far, who are perfectly happy with where they are in their lives, who are comfortable with the way their lives are, who always know what to say, who are expecting an uplifting message today, the kind that is going to simply reaffirm all the stuff that you already believe. No, this, this is not for you. We all love being happy, being comfortable, but this, what we're doing today, is not for comfortable people. Or maybe it's exactly for comfortable people. But today, I speak to the others. Those whose happiness has been stolen from them, those whose pain runs deeper than anyone can know. Today, I speak to you. Because I have not always been happy, and I suspect that I am not alone in that today. Today we meet or re-meet an old friend, even if we cannot know his face or hear his voice. For there once lived in the land of Uts a man called Job. He is perfect, blameless. He fears God. He turns from evil. He has seven sons and three daughters, and he can afford it. He's got a bazillion animals, an absurd amount of servants. He is the greatest man of the East, probably a king of some sort. He is so righteous that he makes sacrifices for his kids just in case they maybe might have sinned against God in their hearts. He doesn't know this. He just does it just in case. This, is the li- this life is the best one anyone could possibly hope for. It's fairly ideal. Huge family, ton of stuff. Loves God. Great. And it all goes wrong. We get to see two scenes in heaven when all God's heavenly court meet together to report about what they've been doing. And one of the members of that court comes and challenges God to a wager. A wager which God accepts. The challenger says, I bet. I bet. But Job does not see any of these scenes as we do. Job knows none of this. For these reasons that Job does not know, one day servants come running to him from the fields, from the various parts of where he lives. One comes up. They all breathlessly report that foreigners are stealing his oxen and killing his servants. A fire from God has come down and burnt up all the sheep and killed more servants. More foreigners are stealing his camels and kill yet more servants. 
In a tornado, a great wind hits the house where all ten of his children are having a party, knocking it down and killing them too. Later, still for reasons Job could not possibly know, he comes down with a terrible sickness, covering his skin in sores so painful that he tries to scrape them off with broken shards of pottery, all the while sitting on a pile of ashes. And through all of this, there's his wife sitting with him. And as it says in the text, read your footnotes. This is what it says. She begs him, bless God and die, that this might all be over. Just another thing to make us a little bit more comfortable, we read it as her saying, curse God and die. It says, bless God and die. Some of Job's friends, probably kings like he is, show up. And they're looking at him from a distance, and so terrible is his pain, so great, so greatly disfigured is his appearance, that from a distance, they don't recognize him. Is that Job? Surely not. But they draw near, they hear of the calamity that has befallen him, they cry out with him, they tear their clothes, and they do the best thing anyone around suffering people can do, they shut up. They sit down in silence with him for a whole week. The text says, no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. You see, we cannot see his face or hear his voice, but we have felt, some of us more and some of us less, the pain that Job feels. Because comfortable, happy people don't need to hear Job's story. Happy people like Job's friends. You know who does need this story? Anyone who has ever faced infertility or had a miscarriage. Anyone who has ever received a terrible diagnosis from the doctor. Anyone who has ever lost a spouse or parent or, God forbid, a child. Anyone who has ever, ever felt alienated by God and wondered, what did we do to deserve the loss of a limb, the betrayal of a friend, the the abuse of a superior? Anyone who has ever hurt so deeply that we considered suicide the only way out of that pain— And anyone who has ever been in any of these situations and had a well-intended person come up to them and tell us this was all part of God's plan or that God works for the good of those who love him, who tell us that time heals all wounds or perhaps worst of all, that maybe somehow we deserve this pain because of our sins. Because that is what comfortable people say. That is what Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar say. If you want to hear nice, comforting things from the book of Job, read some of what the friends have to say. Eliphaz tells us, God does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends rain on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. That's nice. Bildad tells Job, see, these are their happy ways, and out of the earth still others will spring. See, God will not reject a blameless person, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. That's nice. 
Zophar speaks to his friends saying, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? It is deeper than Sheol. What can you know? It's nice. Comforting things to hear about God. These friends have much more to say that isn't all that comforting, actually. The essence of their message is the same thing over and over again in so many different ways. Surely, Job, you must have sinned against God, and you must repent because when has the Almighty ever punished the righteous for their righteousness? They are convinced of Job's guilt, just as convinced as he is of his own innocence. And as it turns out, all the nice things in Job are ultimately said to be wrong. God tells them, you have not spoken of me rightly as my servant Job has. You have not spoken of me rightly as my servant Job has. So what did Job say? Well, he said many things, most of which make us cringe with discomfort. Not unlike this podium being off-center. I'm sure that's bothered someone at some point this morning. It's kind of like walking into a church with a regularly scheduled program only to find they removed the program altogether. If the lack of a worship order was enough to set you on edge today, I'm guessing you like to know the plan ahead of time. I'm guessing you like your routine. We all like our routines. We're creatures of habit. Like Job and anyone on our list of sufferers and tragedies, he knows what it's like when the plan goes out the window. On a normal day, we get to see and be part of the routine— Wake up, eat breakfast, brush our teeth, go to work or school for so many hours, come home, eat dinner, go to bed. On a normal Sunday, we know exactly what to expect almost every single time. Welcome and call to worship. A couple of songs, the Lord's Prayer, a song, prayer of praise, more singing, communion than the offering, maybe with a song in between. Another song, the sermon text, a song, the sermon, another song, the elder's blessing, a final song, lather, rinse, repeat. We know what's coming. But this is not Job's normal day. And we around here have had our share of not normal days. We have seen the plan go out the window. with too few avenues of prayer to deal with the train wrecks that hit our lives. And Job offers just such avenues of prayer for us. Because in Job's poetic outbursts, he holds nothing back. Back in 1979, author Pierre Wolfe published this tiny little book, one of the best books I think I have on my shelf. It's like 75 pages, and it's like this big. It's called May I Hate God. An entity tries to understand how Job speaks to God. Wolf says, what terrible things he is saying to the Lord. We cannot call them hate, but certainly we must recognize the violence of Job's expressions. He does not treat the Lord with kid gloves. Wolf goes on to list some of the most violent expressions that Job speaks. These are not the kinds of things that we can read in a monotone voice. It's easy to breeze through texts like this with this much pain because they make us that uncomfortable. It's really easy to read it like, let the day perish in which I was born and the night that said a man-child is conceived and we can go on and on and let all of our prayers be like this. It doesn't work that way. 
this is a man who just lost everything. Everything he had and is sitting on the ash heap, covered in sores he tried to scrape off with broken pottery shards. So sit with me then with this man on the ash heap as he speaks about God and to God in his anguish. Let the day perish in which I was born and the night that said a man-child is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it or light shine on it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds settle upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Why was I not buried like a stillborn child, an infant that never sees the light? Why is light given to one in misery, in life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it does not come? And they dig for it more than for hidden treasures. Why is light given to one who cannot see the way, whom God has fenced in? I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would grant my desire, that it would please God to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. When I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you, O oh God, scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. Then, so that I would choose strangling and death rather than this body. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone, for my days are a breath. What are human beings that you make so much of them, that you set your mind on them, visit them every morning, test them every moment? Will you not look away from me for a while and let me alone while I swallow my spittle? Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you turn and destroy me? Remember that you fashioned me like clay. Will you turn me to dust again? Bold as a lion, you hunt me. You repeat your exploits against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your vexation toward me. You bring fresh troops against me. These are the prayers of Job. Job hurts, and he hurts so deeply. And as far as he knows, this is all because of God. And God will tell Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, that they have not spoken rightly of God as Job has done. Those prayers, God says, you got it. You're right. Job's prayers give voice to our pain when there is no other voice available. And sometimes we really have no voice for our pain. Several weeks ago, Michael Heddock so boldly preached on Romans 8, and we were able to read the entire chapter throughout that particular worship gathering. There's a little spot in that text we didn't really get to dig into. Michael talked about Paul's claim that we are more than conquerors. He used the word super conquerors because of God's love and God's saving act. But in Romans 8, verses 26 and 27, Paul also says, the very Spirit of God intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. And our Job moments may be filled with sighs too deep for words. And these are certainly prayers. 
when all I can do is sit there and sob. That's a prayer. But so are those moments when we lash out against God in our anguish, in the pains of our heart. Job really does not wear kid gloves when he speaks to the Lord. Maybe we shouldn't either. Job gives us permission to sit in the ashes and hurt and cry out to God, wondering why he has let this, whatever this is for us, happen. At the end of Wolf's book, at the end of May I Hate God, he makes a valuable suggestion. Is it really hatred to cry out to God as violently as Job does? If we're angry with God for permitting so many terrible things to happen, when infants have tumors, when family members die in car accidents, when storms come and knock down our houses, if we're angry with God for these things, is it really hatred? Is this really a sin? I grew up hearing the answer to that was yes. Now I agree with Wolf, who says, no, it's not. God is a big boy. God can handle himself. God can even use that anger to bring us back to him. Imagine for a moment your best friend, the person you love most in this world, has done something to hurt you, and it hurts deeply. Why are you so upset? If anyone else had done that, it wouldn't have hurt as badly. But your best friend, your most beloved, that hurts. And it hurts because you cherish them so much. You get upset and angry and hurt and maybe even yell because you care so much. And you say something because you care and you don't want to be hurt. You don't want to lose that relationship. God can use that kind of anger. I would know. I spent about 15 years being so angry with God that I did not even realize. I hid it so well that I could not actually say, yeah, I'm mad. It was so deeply buried. I could not stand sitting in church every Sunday and many Wednesdays in the presence of a God who had allowed me to hurt so deeply. Here's a moment where I get to lay all my cards on the table. Not all of us get the opportunity to be so publicly vulnerable but I sincerely hope that this will open the doors for you to do the same. When I was in second grade, I had a wonderful teacher, Mrs. Rogers. She was beautiful. She was funny. She was kind. She treated us the way you would expect elementary school teachers to treat their kids. I had no doubt that she loved us. But she had to leave our little Christian school because her husband got a job transfer and we got a new teacher. And this new teacher did not like kids. And she certainly did not like me. For whatever reason, she yelled at us. She threw things at us. And for, I don't know why, but she yelled and threw things at me the most. She called me names. She made fun of me in front of the classroom. She lost my homework on purpose so that I'd have to do it again. Her actions gave the rest of my class permission to treat me that way for the next four years. I know hurt. What did I do to deserve that? Why did she hate me so much? I had no idea. And I still don't. 
One day in second grade, I came home to my mom and I asked her for a pair of scissors. She said, sweetie, what do you need a pair of scissors for? And I told her, if I'm dead, I can't hate her anymore. A nine-year-old, an innocent nine-year-old in that much pain and despair that he would rather end his life than hurt that much. And I blamed God for letting all that happen. And if you're sitting here right now and thinking, well, my story is not that bad, stop it. Stop right now. If you go to the hospital with a broken ankle, yeah, it's going to hurt. You see someone come in who just lost their leg in an accident, does that make your broken ankle hurt less? No. Absolutely not. Your pain is your own. And no one can really know it, and it, will, it, it hurts. Someone else's pain doesn't make yours hurt less, so don't let it. I was so angry for so long. I had no real way to let that out. Not till I went through that emotional health program and got some people who had me pegged who said, you are consumed with hatred and you don't even know it. And I also didn't find a way to let that out until I read, really read, what Job has to say. Then his prayers became my prayers. I can tell you now, suicide is no longer an option for me. It's not on the table. But this isn't a moment of, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Some of us are so far deeply in the tunnel that we can't even see a glimmer of hope. Like Job, I never got an answer for why all that happened to me. But I found an avenue of prayer in God's upright, blameless servant. Our prayers do not all have to sound pretty and be happy. Nearly a third of the psalms are psalms of lament. These are songs of pain and hurt and loss. Some of them are so violent in nature that we almost never read them in churches because they make us too uncomfortable. We like happy endings and for things to finish with sunshine and rainbows. And it's really easy to think this is what happens at the end of Job. Well, he got back all that he had and more, didn't he? It says God blessed Job more in the latter days of his life than at any other point. And he got twice as much as he had. He got ten more children. Well, yes. But did that bring back the ten he had already lost? Anyone who has ever lost a child and then had another can tell you, no, no it didn't, and it never will. The text also says, then there came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And yet, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. These are uncomfortable prayers at the very least and unbearable prayers at the most. But we have permission to use them. So when the train wreck hits your life, and make no mistake, 
It will. Something's coming. Know that it is okay to pray as Job prayed, to hurt as Job hurt, and to know that God is big enough to handle that part of you too.